Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. If a Roman Catholic accidentally dropped their Bible, it would probably flop open to this verse, Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So much authority, which the Roman Catholic Church claims for herself, is based on this verse and some of the verses which surround it. There are volumes of books that have been written on this issue. And so, although some of my information today may seem like really nitpicky and really detailed, I assure you we are only scratching the surface. So before moving forward, let me read to you the larger context of this verse in Matthew 16. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they are north of the Sea of Galilee near Mount Hermon at a place called Caesarea Philippi. So you know, flip open your Bible and go to the maps in the back. They are north of the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, in Matthew 16, and it's verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So today we'll be talking about the phrase, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now you can always connect with me, bearchristianity at gmail.com. Or you can message me on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin, and this is usually where I tell you about a sponsor of the podcast. And this podcast has been blessed with lots of great sponsors, so many wonderful companies out there. But today, I want to ask you to leave a five-star review and a positive comment if you are enjoying this podcast. Many of the podcast apps give you, the listener, the ability to review and comment, and your reviews help this podcast grow. They make it easier for new listeners to find it. Now, some apps such as Spotify do not give you the ability to leave a review. So if you, if you use certain apps and you're looking for a spot to leave a review and you can't find it, you know, don't get frustrated and thanks for looking. Now, for extra effort, you can find this podcast on a different app and leave a review there. I know Apple Podcast is probably the main one where you can, you know, give five-star review and, and leave comments and stuff like that. Anyway, that helps this podcast grow. Thanks so much for listening each week. I know you may not agree with me on everything I say, but I really hope this podcast gets you thinking about why you believe what you believe. Now, a very quick summary. Last week, I started this little mini-series on the Pope, and the basic uh, content of you know where I'm going and and what Bible verses I need to put the most importance on as far as the Roman Catholic claims. It's from Vatican One. Now this was an ecumenical council in 1870, and one of the documents that came out of that council is called Pastor Aeternus. That's A E T E R N U S. 
Pastor Iternus, and that lays out a lot of the basic beliefs. Um, and, and again, this is a, a Roman Catholic ecumenical council. These teachings are supposedly infallible teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So it, there's four chapters to Pastor Iternus. It's a pretty quick read, and you can check the episode notes for a link there, um, and, and you can read through those. But anyway, that lays out what the, the, the Roman Catholic Church believes about the Pope and papal infallibility and those types of things. So that's sort of my base content. Um, so I want to be use I want to use official Roman Catholic sources for what I'm giving you. Now in that document, Pastor Iternus, uh, you know, concerning the teachings about the Pope, it says that this is the ancient and constant faith of the Universal Church. Also, it says that these uh, teachings are the clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church. So this is uh, my argument here in in all of this is that according to Pastor Iternus, these teachings about the Pope have ever been understood by the Catholic Church to be interpreted this way. So there's no room here for the doctrines about the Pope to slowly develop over the centuries. According to the Catholic Church, this has always been the case. In in fact, in in another part of that document, and I've talked about this a lot last week, it says that these you know this jurisdiction, this primacy over the other apostles was given to Peter immediately and directly by Jesus Christ. So this this stuff should not have to develop over time. This should be something that the early church was very much aware of. And throughout history, we should see the Catholic Church, which, again, the Catholic Church claims that their church goes all the way back to Jesus. So we should see the Catholic Church consistently interpreting these verses to to mean exactly what the Catholic Church says they mean today. And is that what we see in history? That That's kind of my main argument. Is that what we see in the New Testament even? And so that's that's kind of how I'm, I'm building my argument against Roman Catholicism in this area. Now, uh, and, and then just real quickly in verse 17, you know, after Peter makes a good confession, Jesus says, blessed are you, and that confession being, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And last week I covered, this is not some special revelation that's given to only Peter. This is the revelation given to every true believer, anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that has been taught to them by the Father. And so last week I sort of laid out some biblical evidence for that. All right, so today, let's talk about the this main phrase, you are Peter. Je- Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so all the debate is on, you know, what is Jesus talking about when he says, on this rock? Who or what is this rock? So tons of discussion here. There are two basic interpretations, and then I'll give you like a little bonus interpretation as well. There, there's two basic ones. It could, this rock could be Peter, okay? Of course, the person of Peter, but also it could be Peter's confession about Jesus. And so you, you, the two basic interpretations are, are, are this rock is Peter or Jesus. And then within that, there's like all these different ways you could sort of look at it, all these little subcategories. So Peter or Jesus. Now, a little bonus interpretation that is is very interesting, but he's the only one that that I've heard that has 
come to this. And so that's why I'm not spending a ton of time, but I'm just going to give you some reference. It's Dr. Michael Heiser, and I've mentioned him before in this podcast. He has a uh, an interpretation that is intriguing, but just not really well accepted. And I, and I don't know if it's just not well accepted because it hadn't had time for other scholars to really look into it. Um, anyway, I, I haven't come across anyone else proposing this, but it's interesting. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and that is like the Roman name for this area. But in the Old Testament, this same region is known as Bashan, B-A-S-H-A-N. Now, Bashan in the Old Testament and, and by the Jews is viewed as a gateway to hell. It's sort of like a like a, a, a demonic center. And, and it's also viewed that, that demons, when they come to earth, they sort of go through this gateway. Okay, so I know this is getting kind of weird. But um, anyway, Bashan is, is viewed as this area. In Psalm 22, and, and Psalm 22 is quoted by Jesus when he's on the cross. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when Jesus says that on the cross, it's kind of like if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Most people know the song, amazing grace. So, so Either Jesus was implying all of the truth found in Psalm 22, which is sort of a prophecy about his crucifixion, or it's possible that Jesus actually was, you know, Psalm 22 and the Psalms in general were the hymns, the songs of the Jewish people. And so it's possible that Jesus sort of quoted this whole Psalm as he was on the cross. But in Psalm 22, as Jesus hung on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, verse 12, it says, the bulls of Bashan surround me. And so again, Bashan was viewed as this gateway to hell. And so when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Michael Heiser, Dr. Heiser argues that Jesus is talking about the massive rock on which he was standing here in Bashan, or in, in uh, again, in the Roman culture, it was known as Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is talking about the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so he's uh, essentially, Jesus is standing at the gates of hell in Bashan and saying, you will not prevail and, and I will build my church. And so it, it's a little bit different view, but I thought that was interesting. You can type in Dr. Michael Heiser and Peter the Rock or something like that in YouTube, and I'm sure a video will pop up and explains. He, he goes into a lot of other Bible verses and sort of makes some connections. Anyway, that was interesting, so check that out. Now, back to our two basic interpretations. Is this rock talking about Peter or is it talking about Jesus? Now, there's lots of difficulty in this area. There, there's, there's many different theories on how to properly interpret this verse and why is there such difficulty. So let's go through some of those. First off, it's when you're interpreting this verse, it depends on how you look at the context. So early on in the verses that I read, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, the, the first thing that Jesus is talking about, he says, who, do, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples give some different answers. And then and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So the context here is we're talking about Jesus is the Messiah. That's the focus. This, this passage of scripture was written to discuss who is Jesus. That is what's most important. So that's the context. Now, if you keep with this context throughout the flow of the whole passage, then the focus should always be on Jesus. And so therefore, when it comes to, when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, 
a lot of people interpret that to be Jesus is talking about himself as this rock. Like your your nickname is rock. Uh, by the way, Peter means rock. And I'll get into that in just a, a little bit more in just a, a second. Peter means rock. So Jesus is like making a pun here. He's like, you are Peter, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so Jesus is, if we, if the context is staying on Jesus, if we're focusing on Jesus, then we can interpret this rock as meaning something about Jesus, the, the confession made about Jesus, Jesus, and the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. So it, that's how some people think this verse is talking about Jesus. Now, for the Roman Catholics or people that think that Peter is the rock, the, the context sort of switches focus. So it starts out, it's focused about Jesus. Then when Peter, after Peter makes his confession, the focus switches and you have a few verses that are directly talking about Peter himself. And then at the very end in verse 20, you know, Jesus charges them to tell no one that he is the Christ. And so then the context has to switch back to focusing on Jesus. And so that that's two different ways of of looking at that, uh, and and how to where the focus should be. So when you're when you're looking at that passage, where what should we be focusing on? So that's the first thing. The next problem or difficulty is the Greek grammar that is used. So Matthew writing the gospel here, the the gospel of Matthew is written in Greek, but Jesus and his disciples and the Jews of that day they spoke Aramaic. So in the Greek. It says, you are Petros. Peter is Petros, and that's like the masculine form of the, the word for rock. All right, so Peter is Petros, and then Jesus says, and on this Petra, P-E-T-R-A, Petra, I will build my church. Now, Petra is the, the feminine form, and if you've taken like Spanish before, you know that like la casa is a feminine word. It doesn't mean houses are only for girls. It's just the way that that language works. And so Petra is a feminine noun, and that means rock. And so it's used in the Bible when Jesus says, the foolish man builds his house on the sand and the wise man builds his house on the rock. He uses that word Petra. So Petra means a massive rock that you could build a house on or, or like the, the base of a, a rock bed. There's a different word for like a little, like a pebble that you would throw at someone. And that was lithos. Okay. So Jesus says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. So why would Matthew change up the, the words here? Is he trying to indicate that Jesus is making a pun but not referencing Peter? So that's one theory. Why would Matthew change it? Also, there are easier ways for, to, for Matthew to have communicated that this is all focused on Peter. So Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock... He could have said, you are Peter, and on you, Peter, keeping the word the exact same, and on you, Peter, if he, if he would have continued to use the second person pronoun, you, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. But Matthew doesn't write it that way. Also, Jesus, or Matthew could have written, Jesus is saying, this is Peter, like Jesus is talking to the rest of the disciples, and he's sort of motioning to Peter. This is Peter, and on this rock. And so there's ways to keep it the exact same where it would have been very clear exactly who Jesus was talking about, but instead, it's changed. It's it's slightly different in the wording. So there's the Greek grammar problem, okay, or difficulty. Now, there's also the Aramaic 
issues. And so in Aramaic, there are no genders. You don't have like Petros and Petra as masculine and feminine. In Aramaic, that, that, that doesn't exist. And so in Aramaic, Peter means Cephas, C-E-P-H-A-S. Cephas in, and it's, it's the same word no matter what, masculine or feminine. There's no gender. So it would be, you are Cephas, and on this Cephas, I will build my church. So here's where Roman Catholics will say, well, Jesus was speaking Aramaic. So even though the Greek changes the, the words a little bit, that doesn't matter because Jesus was, was you know, with all... We, we all think that Jesus was speaking Aramaic, and so they'll make that argument. Also, some of the early church fathers mentioned that Matthew was first written in the Hebrew tongue, meaning Aramaic. Now, there's tons of debate about what all that means. So this, again, this can really get down in the weeds. But that's that's the other issue is is some, some Catholics will argue, well, this was all originally stated in Aramaic, and therefore the, the language problem in the Greek just shouldn't even matter. Now, you may think through all this, okay, it seems like the plain meaning of the text is that Peter is the rock. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so people would say, well, Protestants are basically going to this, and they're saying, well, we've got to be in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. So they would say, why are Protestants being so hard-headed? It seems like the, the plain reading would be that Peter is the rock. Well, maybe so, but let's go to a different example. Let's turn the tables. There's a, do- there's a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the perpetual vir- virginity of Mary, and we'll get into this in later episodes. Basically, the belief is that Mary was a virgin her whole life. So yes, of course, Jesus was, was born of a virgin, but after that, the Bible speaks of Jesus having brothers and sisters. And so that the plain meaning of that would be that Mary and Joseph had children afterwards. But Roman Catholics believe that that Mary was a perpetual virgin. In fact, it's one of the dogmas of the church. You have to believe this in order to be in right communion with the church. It is, it is a part of the very gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Catholics. So you this is a big deal. So how how do they you know defend this? How do they even go against it? The Bible clearly says Jesus had brothers and sisters. Well, they would say, well, this word for brothers and sisters could sometimes be used to refer to family relatives. So it doesn't have to exactly mean brothers and sisters the way we take it. And so, again, Protestants, or or excuse me, Catholics can accuse Protestants of just not going with the seemingly plain reading of Scripture, and then we can make the same argument against Catholics. It clearly says Jesus' brothers and sisters were standing with Mary and waiting for him outside the the house to speak with him. There's there's Bible verses about that, and Catholics have to take that word and and just make it mean something else based on their prior commitments to the Rome to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, n- neither party can make this argument. Well, it's just the plain reading of Scripture. I don't know why you can't just accept it. All right. Now, here's the next problem. There are several Protestant scholars who disagree on the interpretation of this verse. D.A. Carson is a Protestant theologian, well-respected, and he interprets this as Peter being the rock. And there's a very popular commentary that D.A. Carson's involved with, and and so a lot of Catholics, like in 
I think every debate I've ever heard on the on the Pope, uh, Catholics will bring up this point that D.A. Carson says that, that Peter's the rock. And there are other Protestant scholars as well that have this interpretation. Here's the, here's the issue, though. Even though a Protestant scholar may say that Peter is the rock, according to this verse, they are not saying that Peter is the rock in, in the way that the Roman Catholic Church is saying it. So they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, Peter is, is the rock here in this verse, but he's not the pope. So when, in the same commentary where, where D.A. Carson says, I think it's the, the, the clearest meaning that Peter is the rock, just a few paragraphs down, he says this, quote, none of this requires that conservative Roman Catholic views be endorsed. The text says nothing about Peter's successors, infallibility, or exclusive authority. These late interpretations entail insuperable exegetical and historical problems. End quote. So he's D.A. Carson is saying Peter is the rock, but not in the way the Roman Catholic Church says he's the rock. And then he gives this example, quote, after Peter's death, his successor would have authority over a surviving apostle, that being John. So here's what's being said there. If the Roman Catholic Church is correct about Peter, they say that Peter was the Pope and he was given that authority by Jesus Christ. And then Peter's successors essentially have the same authority as Peter. So Peter, when when Peter died, whoever succeeded him as the supposed Pope had greater authority over the Christian church than the apostle John. This is the same John who leaned on, the Bible says he leaned on the the breast or the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper. John had the prominent seat, the the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. That's, That's what the Roman Catholic Church is saying. After Peter's death, Peter's successor, who did not follow Christ for three and a half years, you know, who who may not have even seen Christ in person, Peter's successor is greater than the Apostle John as far as authority over the church. So let that sink in a little bit. That's a that's a very bold claim made by the Roman Catholic Church, and that's one of the main reasons that D.A. Carson does not accept the, the popish claims of the church, but he's willing to say, yeah, I think Peter is the rock in this verse. So the last little issue I want to to bring up is the historical issues surrounding the interpretation of you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The early church fathers wrote extensively and and this gets into a very muddy area and so I do quote you know early church fathers and popes from the past and stuff like that and I try to give you the the source so that you can go look at that quote for yourself. Here's what happens so many times with early church fathers. You can go on tons of websites, Protestants and Catholics, so I'm not calling out Catholics by themselves. People will misquote and and abuse quotes from early church fathers to prove their point. You can go back and you can find some sort of quote and and then portray it in a way that supports your view on both sides. The main thing to keep in mind, though, is that in the early church fathers, there was vast differences of opinions on this verse. They they make comments on this verse. Some of them interpret this verse to be talking about Jesus Christ. Some interpret it to be Peter. Some interpret it to be Peter's faith and his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So there were all kinds of interpretations in the early church fathers. It was not, as the as Vatican I, Pastor Iternus document, as it states, that this is the clear doctrines of Holy Scripture as they have ever been understood by the Catholic Church. We don't see that this is some, some sort of unanimous con- conclusion by the early church fathers. They varied on their interpretation. Now, here's this makes it even more difficult when you're talking about this stuff with a Roman Catholic. They will say, well, some parts of Scripture have a polyvalent interpretation. Polyvalent. Basically, this means that one passage of Scripture can have multiple interpretations, and, and all of them are correct. So for, he, for here, they would say, well, if an early church father says that Jesus is the rock, I mean, of course we believe that Jesus is the rock, for sure, but Peter is also the rock. And so just because an early church father says this, you know, they quote this verse and then say, I believe that Jesus is the rock, you know, Jesus is referring to himself here. Well, just because they say that, a Roman Catholic would say, well, yeah, but this is a polyvalent interpretation. This could have a polyvalent meaning. So that early church father, they probably knew Peter was the rock as well. They just didn't specifically say that. So in order to defend the the Protestant position, the Protestant has to find an early church father that says Jesus is the rock and also says Peter is not the rock. That's like the only valid way to to talk to a Roman Catholic about this issue because if it's not specifically stated that Peter is not the rock, they will just assume that that early church father also believed he was the rock. Why do they assume this? Because the Roman Catholic Church tells them what they should believe and what they should find in history, and they also tell them what everybody else believed in history and how to interpret the Bible. You just have to trust the church and and trust what the church tells you. So they have to assume all of this. Now, here's my biggest problem with with all of this. How can a passage, just like the one I've, I've been discussing this whole time, how can this passage with so many reasonable areas of, of dispute, there are brilliant scholars who are trying to go to the Bible and and know exactly what it's saying. How can how can this passage with so many reasonable areas of dispute be dogmatically proclaimed to be interpreted a certain way? And if you don't agree with the church's interpretation, they say let you know let him be anathema or accursed. So you are accursed if you do not agree with the church's interpretation of this verse. Again, it is the church is the ultimate authority, not scripture. It is it is the church alone, sola ecclesia. So here's my basic interpretation of this passage. Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and on this message, we see the Jews and the Gentiles come into the kingdom of God. So how, you know, if if I'm going to interpret this as, okay, Peter is the rock, in what way is Peter the rock, and how can I interpret that and be consistent with Scripture? So Peter is the rock, in, in, in my opinion, and Peter is the rock in this way. At Pentecost, and, and that's found in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost, and thousands of Jews come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what did Peter preach? He preached this same confession that he made. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says, this is, this is the Jesus whom you crucified. And so, so Peter is preaching Jesus, that, that he's the promised Old Testament Messiah, 
that he was crucified, but then, but then he rose again. So Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in Acts 10, God orchestrates for Peter to meet Cornelius, who is a centurion. That's a, a Roman soldier. So, so Cornelius is a Gentile. And Peter preaches to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household are saved as well. And so Peter's message of the gospel of Jesus Christ essentially is the first accounts we have in the New Testament of the church that gets going. So the the, the first time we have people coming into the church is at Pentecost. Peter preaches the message of the gospel there, and then to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So in that way, I can see how Peter is the rock on which Jesus built his church. Peter's message about Jesus is how the church gets going. Now, keep you know what did Peter preach? He preached the the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, I've mentioned this quote, and and I just think it is just an incredible thing for a pope to say. Pope Boniface in thirteen o two in his papal bull entitled Unum Sanctum, he says this: We declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman Pontiff. Now, let's compare this to what Peter says when Peter's talking to Cornelius in Acts ten forty. Three, Peter says to him, all the pro-, and that is he's talking about Jesus. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that is how you are forgiven of your sins. It is faith or belief in Jesus Christ, in what he in in the person of Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. That is how we have forgiveness of sins. It is belief or faith. So, you know, there is nothing here about, oh, and you also must be subject to my authority as Pope over the rest of the apostles and and of the universal church. There's there's no, Peter or, or nobody in the New Testament makes that claim that there's this other stuff that you have to believe in order to be saved. I believe what was necessary for salvation when Peter preached at Pentecost is the same exact doctrines or or truth that we must believe in today for our own salvation. Just because we're 2000 years out does not believe, does not mean we have to believe more or so we don't have to believe all this other stuff that the Roman Catholic Church has lumped onto the gospel of Christ. They they keep adding on these extra dogmas that are binding. All of the Roman Catholic Church dogmas, the perpetual virginity of Mary, which I've talked about today, papal infallibility, all of that stuff, you must believe the in the same way that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. They are all dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. They are, they are like on an equal playing field. If you deny any of them, then you are out of communion with the church and therefore not in right relationship with God. Now, some some liberal Roman Catholics would argue at that point. They say, "Oh no, this you know, that bear guy. He's being ridiculous." I'm talking about the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. You can read it in their in their own dogmas. They they say, "Let you know if you don't believe this, let you be accursed. Let him be anathema." So you must believe all these dogmas that that the church is adding on to the gospel. Now, real quick, I want to discuss what is the church. The name for church in the in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, and that comes from two words. It's a compound word. So ek means out of, 
and kaleo means to call. So the church is those who are called out of. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There you have called, kaleo, and out of, ek, right there together. That is the church. It is the people who are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The, the, the church is the people. It is the people of God. It is not a building. It is not an organization. It is, it is the, the group, the community of the people of God. In Romans 8.30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The gates of hell will not prevail against the true church. This is the true believers. This is not an organization. So in closing, the Roman Catholic system is interlocking. How are our sins forgiven? Well, the Pope holds the keys to heaven. So we've got to go through the Pope. Remember Boniface's quote, "...is necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. You must believe all the Roman Catholic dogmas. These are part of the gospel, and they are binding on everyone to believe. The Pope holds authority over the local priest. If you sin, how do you have forgiveness of sins? You must go and confess to that local priest, and you must do the penance, the acts of penance that that priest tells you to do." And then also, in order to reduce your amount of time in purgatory, you can do you can gain indulgences, which are granted by who? The Pope, the authority of the Pope. So you get indulgences from the Pope. All of this is to be made right with God. So you have to go through the Pope. Now, what if you disagree with the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on any of these dogmas? Or, you know, well, you can't. It is sola ecclesia. You must trust the church. The church tells you what you have to believe and how do you how you have to interpret the Bible. And so I've discussed three topics so far: justification or or how we're made right with God. What is our ultimate authority? Is it is it sola scriptura or is it sola ecclesia? And then now we're talking about the Pope. It's all this interlocking system. The Roman Catholic Church places a hierarchy of people between you and God. So without the Roman Catholic Church, you can't know the truth about God. You can't properly interpret God's word, and you cannot be forgiven of sin. Well, I have a big problem with this. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 